Welcome to Your Health Guide, your how-to prescription for better health, translating cutting-edge research for your everyday life. Join naturopath and health educator Lawrence Katsaris for practical tips and insights to help you on your wellness journey. Welcome back to Your Health Guide. I'm Lawrence Katsaris, and in this episode, I'm joined by naturopath, researcher, and podcaster Nathan Rose to chat about the things a father can do to boost the health and happiness in their child. Now, as a dad, we always want what's best for our family, but as current recommendations stand, we may come to the party a little bit later than we should. What I mean by that is that most people think that father's role really starts when the child is born, but it actually turns out that the health of the father before conception has a lot to do with the priming and programming of the health of the child for its entire life. And Nathan and I are going to discuss how factors like lifestyle habits, diet, stress, body composition can actually create genetic programming that's carried through from the sperm that prime up the patterns of the physiology and health for the child for its entire life and even the future generation which I know may not make logical sense, but we're going to show you and talk about some research that demonstrates just how profound this impact can actually be. So with some simple lifestyle interventions and some nutritional support can give your child the best start to life. But don't worry, if you've missed that time window and your partner's already pregnant, Nathan covers some things dads can do to make the best impact on your child's life during that infancy time period. I'm hoping that this episode helps men understand that with some simple planning and a couple of small interventions can make a big impact on your child's life and how we should really harness that opportunity to give our kids the best start to life. Thanks for joining me on the show again, Nathan. Pleasure to be here, Lawrence. Thank you. Now, you've been spending a lot of time recently researching and talking about the emerging evidence that is showing that the father's role in the child's life and influencing that child's life isn't just about supplying some sperm for conception and then really where most people think about it is him being that father at birth and from birth forward, where you've been seeing some research that's actually changing that around, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the, the, I suppose the prevailing or the previous view was that the men just apply the genetic material and, as you know, like the, the baby's half genetics from the father and half from the mother and it was all thought to be you supply that genetic material and as long as um, you conceive as a man then you've done your job and a lot of the interest in the research has been on sperm motility and function to assist in that moment of conception. However, over the past couple decades but more recently uh, there's this new science in this field of epigenetics which I believe you've delved into a little bit but I'll go into more again now where it's not so much the genetic code that is passed on to the offspring, it's, but it's um, which genes are actually switched on or off. So our cells contain, every cell in our body um, that contains a nucleus, which holds our book of life or the library or the, the DNA, um, has all the instructions for every, every sort of cell. So, for example, in your eye, like your retina, it has the instructions to make a liver cell. Obviously, you don't want to make a, a liver cell in your eyeball. So... A lot of genes are silenced. Um, they've got these sort of blankets over the top of them that prevents them from being read. And this is where this subtle um, art or this new science is being discovered about epigenetics. So it's not the code we possess, or that's important, but actually do we switch on or off those genes? Now, um, 
what they're finding is that men's sperm um, contains all these um, markers or epigenetic marks which can silence um, or switch on genes and um, these can be passed down from generation to generation so um, like somebody inherits blue eyes you can also um, inherit that's from your, your, your genes but you can there's some subtle inheritances that can occur which are not from the actual genetic makeup but from this epigenetic makeup is that making sense so yeah far? it does it does and so what's those subtle occurrences that can occur so he's obviously supplying the f- frank dna and yep. so it's coming from the mother but what you're saying is that the sperm act as messengers if you will that are carrying not only this frank genetic material but they're also carrying with that genetic material the predisposition to whether something would be expressed or silenced and yes. then that would influence you know what sort of influence is that having in the, in the child? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you can almost see it as like it transmits information about the dad's current environment or um, environment over their lifetime. So like, for example, previously they would have maybe thought that you could be, you know, 160-kilogram male who smokes and um, almost has like cirrhosis because they drink too much, but um, that doesn't matter because that's not damaging the DNA in your sperm. And that might be true, but those behaviours or the, that um, environment the man's living in can influence the epigenetic makeup of the man's sperm. So you can transmit essentially information about what the dad's been going through, whether it's stress, nutrition, malnutrition, um, to the offspring. Almost that the view is to prime that baby to um, be able to adapt to that sort of life in the future. Um, probably... Uh, Nutrition's the biggest one where, and I'll get into the some of the historical studies where a man's nutrition status during his lifetime or even before he conceives seems to have a bearing on the child's metabolic health in their lifetime. Now, the metabolic health is one aspect that can be influenced in the child. Essentially what we're seeing in the literature is that the health of the child, and it's not just in that childhood it's the whole entire life as well as subsequent generations. So some of this is showing that that would then affect like the fertility of that child when he grows up, his fertility options or his options, his likelihood of developing cancer, as you're saying here, metabolic disorders like obesity or um, diabetes or hypertension coming because of the, the epigenetic tags the, that are in the sperm, essentially. So... The areas that can be influenced in that whole child's life is one is metabolic, another is neurodevelopmental, so their stress response and developing mood and stress disorders, and also immune programming. But do you mind walking us through like how? Because it's it's a fascinating it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's almost yeah. it almost sounds crazy and too too much. Like absolutely, yeah. you're essentially inheriting the like the memory of your father's lifestyle patterns. Absolutely, yeah. That, that There's the phrase, you are what you eat. Or um, in this sort of model, it's you are what you eat, what your dad ate and what your granddad ate. That, that can be this transgenerational effect. Which is nuts. Like, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, you know, it doesn't completely set your destiny. You're, you know, like, if you, then we can start going, oh, I'm like this because of my grandfather. But we can still have an opportunity to change this epigenetic expression, especially during infancy, but even during our life, which we can probably touch on later. So 
how, what are the factors? What are the environmental factors that are influencing that you've been seeing are the most prominent factors that will influence your child's health? Yes, uh, very good question. Um, so probably the, the biggest one from looking at the literature in both uh, sexes, like the mum and the dad, is nutrition. Um, historically, it's been malnutrition. Um, so I might go into that just as a bit of a context. So uh, um, there's, there's well-known uh, correlations between what a mum eats when she's pregnant and the health of the child. And um, there's the Dutch hunger famine, which is about women who were pregnant during World War II um, was a food shortage in Sweden. And those children grew up to be, um, have greater incidence of cardiovascular disease and obesity. Um, so that's sort of getting well established now. But intriguingly, there was a study also in Sweden, or data coming from Sweden um, previous to this in around the 1800s, uh, that's dubbed the Overcalic study, where uh, fortunately in Sweden they, they keep rather meticulous um, health and records and of the population. And um, they looked at uh, rural farmers and their harvest for the year, interestingly, and they found, they looked at when there was a good season, you know, and there was a lot of food and calories around versus a poor season through a drought um, and a poor yield that they always have fewer calories to eat. And the scientists looked at um, the health outcomes of men's um, children. And what they found in one period when men who um, suffered like a, a famine in their teenage years and their adolescence when those men went on to have children, when those children grew up, they actually had less incidence of cardiovascular disease and obesity. So somehow that that um, semi-starvation during the, the formative years of the, the dad had some um, ability to transfer this message that um, be prepared for scarcity when you're older because I'm not getting any now. And that somehow made them um, fitter or less prone to cardiovascular disease. Now the take-home message is we shouldn't be shouldn't be starving our you know fifteen-year-old boys, <laughs> no. but it, it does show that there is this um, link, transgenerational link that's not genetic. There's this that the environment can somehow imprint this um, message into the genome without changing the structure. So that's that's a sort of connection. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about more recent. Um, Animal studies, now the, the beauty of animal studies is you can control for a lot of things and do some molecular techniques to, to understand what's going on. So I'll fast forward to more recently um, that's sort of providing mechanisms or knowledge on how this is occurring or, or if this phenomenon is real or not. So it's an intriguing study, but they got um, mice and it's a little bit um, macabre, but they um, exposed uh, male mice to a scent, a sweet sort of fruity smell, and sort of like a Pavlovian dog experiment, they, whenever they smelt this scent, they'd give them a mild electric shock to their, their paw um, just to sort of make that connection. So every time um, they'd detect this scent, they'd get this stress response and in anticipation of this shock, and eventually they didn't shock them, but they'd expose the scent to these mice and they'd freak out essentially, understandably. So that's sort of Pavlovian dog sort of um, linking, but... This is where it gets interesting. They then discontinued the, the shock therapy and the, and the scent and allowed these um, male mice to mate with females. And then these um, females had the, the pups and they exposed these pups to that same scent that their dad smelt preconception. And lo and behold, these um, pups freaked out as well. They had the same 
stress response in anticipation of this shock. And even further, their children, so three generations, had this same phenomenon. And they did intricate sort of research or um, studies to eliminate, it wasn't that the dad told the wife, or the, the sorry, the mate, hey, by the way, um, tell your child when he, get, when he smells that smell um, to freak out. They did like IVF, so they, you know, took away the, um, the mating and just did the IVF and sperm and egg. So the, the male was completely removed from conception and rearing the pup, but somehow that pup had this association of the scent versus equals um, stress. So uh, profound. Yeah, yeah. Such a profound study. And like, so then they've just carried through that same learned response. Like, yes, yeah. And then um, back to our sort of molecular techniques we have today, the, the, the researchers looked at the DNA and found that there's certain epigenetic marks, which um, is called methylation, it's this small chemical that sticks on top of your gen- DNA sequence. It sort of prevents it from being expressed. So certain genes were silenced around um, smelling, but um, this happened in the male's sperm. So it deliberately programmed the, the male's DNA sperm to um, have alterations in its, in its um, smelling or sensory neurons that affects its nervous system. So they found the mechanism that explained, well, that explained this phenomenon. And that was similar to the changes that they were seeing in the, the father that had directly been exposed to the smell. Yeah. Which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If you, you know, they're experiencing trauma, they want to then alert their offspring to be, you know, don't go near that particular thing or that smell in this instance. If you smell that, be very careful because it's going to cause danger. Yeah, which, I mean, this is pretty sort of deep, profound, but really challenges sort of the Darwinian um, idea of natural selection where that view is like just by random chance there'll be a random mutation that that next species will inherently freak out of that Mm. smell. So it can sort of progress evolution (laughs) more rapidly, I suppose. Which is what's crazy. Yeah. That's what's really cool about it. Yeah, Yeah. so, but um, going back to sort of health behaviours in... um, in men, in humans, which we're probably here to learn about, um, obviously we don't have all the mechanisms yet of um, which genes are silenced and so forth, but there has been some um, strong correlations of this epigenetic effect in men's sperm. And it's the usual sort of lifestyle factors that do um, rear their heads, like being obese and overweight. If you look at the, the sperm epigenetic marks compared to overweight men compared to lean men, they've got different patterns. So they might have the same, similar genes, but um, different marks to suggest which one's going to be switched on and off. Um, smoking has a big effect. So toxins, malnutrition, when I say malnutrition, not starvation, but um, a lack of uh, micronutrients like B vitamins, etc. Um, a lack of nutrients in men has epigenetic effects. Toxin exposure has epigenetic effects. Um, in animal studies, stressing out animals, as we saw, but that's been replicated over and over, um, possibly through a stress hormone from your, your adrenal glands called cortisol, um, that can affect the epigenome of the men's uh, sperm and transmit that stress response to the offspring. So a lot of the common diet and lifestyle factors um, that we're exposed to can affect the offspring. So back to our sort of bigger discussion is, a man just is not really this sort of passive sperm donator for conception. Um, they ideally need to be fit and healthy, um, you know, most of their lives, but certainly leading into conception. It's 
um, probably wise that a man has some sort of preconception care health program as much as the woman does. Which would be fantastic. I think that it's a difficult situation you and I both know um, trying to get guys involved in this because of the general idea that, yeah, it's just supplying the sperm. You know, it's really, and I've seen this time and time again from from guys and then even heard of it where their GPs will confirm yeah. the same thing. It's like, it's all about the women's health. It's like, let's just check your sperm parameters and often they won't even get checked if it'll be, let's try to conceive first. Correct. And if you're having problems with fertility, let's make sure that he's not shooting blanks and then otherwise let's do these rigorous investigations and make sure her health is all optimal where now the research is really levelling that up a lot more and, and saying that, no, he needs to be in optimal health as well. And even that can be influencing not only her conception but also her pr- her pr- um, pregnancy health outcomes as well. So their health outcomes of the child but as well as the health of the mother during that pregnancy. So with the uh, with the and parameters I guess it's probably worth diving into these in some detail now you mentioned um, obesity probably starting with the most common one that is affecting most people um, metabolic health and being overweight when is this an issue for men like how how overweight do they need to be for it to be pro- to become problematic for them yeah that's a, a very good question and um I think it's sort of the the journey, not the destination. And this is my sense, and this will hopefully um, address the idea that uh, you know we shouldn't sort of play God too much and prevent, try, <laughs> discourage men from um, ever conceiving until they're like eight percent body fat and jacked. It's um, I think it's the the trajectory they're heading in. So um, ideally, just the the general sort of um, healthy weight, like in, you know BMI, body mass index, is your height versus your your, your gross weight. Um, is criticised a bit as a, a crude marker, but I think it's pretty good. So a BMI of under 25, between 20 and 25 is ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, it can get sort of thrown out a little bit if the man's carrying a fair bit of muscle mass. Um, so maybe you get up to 26, 27 um, of a BMI. Um, but I think it's probably important, as I, as I just said, like that they're heading in the right direction. Uh, this is my sentiment looking at just other research like, the body is pretty forgiving. Um, if you're heading in the right path, like, for example, weight loss in general, you can be well overweight, like a BMI of 30 or 35, and just losing 5, but probably about 10% of your body weight um, tends to correct a lot of the, you know, disease markers and, like, high blood pressure, high glucose, high blood fats, etc. You're not, you're certainly nowhere near, like, you know, um, bodybuilder or, you know, physique athlete sort of, um, body composition, but that you, your biochemistry tends to correct pretty quickly. So I think if the man's you know overweight, if they can, um, and I'm also mindful of like we're not living in an ideal world where people are willing to wait forever to conceive. Mm. Um, I think a, a three month weight loss program could be sufficient, particularly if the men's five, ten kilos, kilograms overweight. If they're twenty or thirty still, if they can lose five or ten kilos. Um, which is quite achievable in a, a three-month period, even a five-kilogram weight loss. Um, I'd, and as I said, the, the research is still pretty preliminary in this, but I'd be confident that their their sperm health would more resemble uh, a lean man, lean man's sperm sort of epigenetic um, profile compared to an overweight person. And there has been some research putting men on a just an exercise program, doing um, aerobic activities five days a week where after three months um, 
they had massive changes in their sperm epigenetic profile. That's right. That was a great study. That was so they saw a decrease in expression of genes in the men after yeah. after this three month, you know, pretty average, very achievable exercise program. At the end of that period, they saw they their sperm had less expression of genes for obesity, schizophrenia, autism. Uh, I think there was a cancer, cancer in there, leukemia. leukemia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, just for a bit of sort of technical interest, yeah. So when we talk about genes, there's not really they haven't identified a single gene, a gene that causes leukemia or autism, but there's um, typically they they sort of sweep the whole DNA, the whole genome, and we've got about twenty two thousand um, genes that we all possess that do something um, that we can measure. So they sweep the, the genome looking for abnormalities, say in autism versus healthy controls, and there might be five hundred genes linked to autism or um, 37 are linked to leukemia as an example. So what they found with the exercise program, those genes that are, are, are correlated with that, that disease were mostly silenced. Um, but as I said, it's, there's no one sort of hero or villain gene in this, this scenario. It's a general collection that seemed to be quietened and positive genes uh, were allowed to be expressed, if that makes sense. Mm. But certainly, you know, it's setting them off on the right, a good path if, um, with that general profile. And they saw better results the older the man was as well, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so it was sort of like those, I guess, as we age, we're more likely to start to per- possess more negative health patterns for expression from our genes. And they started to see, see that those were even more switched off from the older man. So I guess if it's a ageing male looking at um, having another child or starting a family, certainly important to be making sure we're getting these parameters in place. And I guess in terms of when I would know if I need to be losing that 10% of body weight is would you just be looking at waist circumference as a great marker for that, like waist circumference and just fat mass? Yeah, absolutely. Waist circumference, fat mass, how your clothes fit. Um, I know there's some great you know, uh, tools to measure body composition through like um, you know, wiring up electrodes to you and um, I think gyms offer awesome um, some interesting and um, MRIs now and things, but I mean, just your gut, pardon the pun, gut instinct, <laughs> or like if they look in the mirror and you know, they know they're they, carrying, if you know you're yeah. carrying too much weight, certainly something that you yeah. want to be getting it down. But and if you're said, above 90, 90 centimeters, yeah, as a guy, yeah, like certainly start to go, centimeters, 94, yeah. start yep. to go, okay, you know, I probably do need to get that. Yeah, 94 there. centimeters links the cutoff. Um, it's yeah, ideally to have a, a smaller waist as possible, but as I said. Um, we don't need to get into sort of like bodybuilding sort of physiques. Mm. It's, um, as long as we're, I think, heading in the right direction, that's uh, a, a very, very good start. Which is, like you're saying, is about the journey, not the destination. Essentially what you're doing is that when you're on a weight loss program or a fitness program and you're doing good things with your diet and your lifestyle, your genes are then expressing that that's your health situation. Yes. You know, even though you know you might only be three kilograms into this weight loss, your body is then starting to say, in this current day, I am pro- I'm, I'm health promoting because I'm following a good diet and lifestyle, as opposed to when I'm eating too much, drinking too much, not exercising, your body is in a disease promoting situation. So that's going to influence the expression of the genes that are going to be present in your sperm on that you know on that period. Yes. But on that, I was about to say that mm-hmm. day. We a sperm take about three months to make. Yes. So the window that we need to be looking at this doing it for, and you mentioned three months as a as a time period for 
achieving you know achievable weight loss I need to be thinking about this if I'm thinking of having a family or start or having another child I need to be completing my health you know my health kick and then it's sort of three months from there because then my sperm will be made from the new healthier me correct right? yeah yeah um, which probably coincides with a, a recent study that it, I want to discuss it just came out the other day um, and I also want to caution not to sort of over emphasize this or over you know overplay it too much because a lot of this is sort of correlation where they're connecting dots but it's still interesting in this context where they looked at um the rates of heart abnormalities in children and looked at health behaviors of the parents and the um the the biggest uh correlated factor was how much the the men um drank and particularly binge drink drank within the six months of conception so again, around that sort of six month period. So as I said, I don't want to freak people out and be, um, I'm not saying everyone needs to become a teetotaler, but it was linked at the and and thankfully, you know, heart defects are pretty rare. So this is a, a, an increase in a rare condition, but nevertheless, it's a, a significant finding. But um, just to repeat, men who drank the most tended to have babies who had the most heart defects. So um, and that was six months leading into it. So yeah, one you know, on one hand, I'm saying like a, the body's pretty forgiving and you can. Um, make some changes and within three or six months you're going to see some benefits. But it probably also, on the other hand, suggests that, you know, lifelong health habits is, is important it's as important, well. Yeah, and we can't go back in time and change that, but certainly I think that where we're seeing some of this literature support is that you can't just slack off as the guy and yeah. just say, ah, oh, it's all right, because I see a lot of this with my friends and it's like you're still drinking and smoking and, like, it's more about, oh, well, when we conceive, it'll be the mother that will have to stop the drinking and improve yeah. the lifestyle. It's like you need to be doing that, ideally in that preconception period, so ideally three months prior to at least to conceiving. And that's going to have an impact on when conception takes place. Well, firstly, making sure that that conception does happen because, yeah, easily exactly, yeah. and then that that mother goes through that pregnancy as smooth sailing as possible and then when that child is born, the health of that infant, the developing child, even right through to its adulthood, and then even through to the next generation when it, your child has kids, will be influenced by what the dude's doing. So I think he needs to step up and kind of take some of that responsibility Absolutely, seriously. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, they're only going to benefit themselves as well from feeling better and losing weight and being, you know, fitter ideally. So it's a it's a win win situation, but it does require a bit of commitment. And and I suppose yeah, first of all, that acknowledgement I got to do something here um, because this what I'm doing now could potentially yeah, impact generations to come. Mm. Hey, that talking about the drinking there makes me think about the study that was out you know relatively recently where they found that men whose fathers smoked you know around conception, those men had fifty percent less sperm and sperm concentration than men whose fathers were non-smokers. Yeah, so, wow. So what we're talking about here is, while it might seem a bit of an inconvenience, and you know, I do agree with you, you've got to keep this in balance and check, but the small intervention could have the ability to completely change the life outcomes for your child. Like, you know, maybe potentially overstating that, but yeah. you know, when you're thinking about the fact that it's taking two to make a baby, so... If his health isn't ideal and her health isn't ideal, then we're certainly going to have a greater likelihood of passing on, you know, not the best health outcomes for that child. And it's not like you won't, 
you won't notice that, right? The child's going to be born, yeah, pregnancy exactly. could be pretty yeah. well fine. It'll just be the subtle things, and they tend to find it's like from the studies looking at it retrospectively, it's over the course of that life, they start to see changes in, in that child. But seven years of age, teenage years, as it becomes older, that in adulthood that you start to see this difference in their risk factors for disease and for health. So making sure that he's got a healthy body composition, important. Yep. Check your waist circumference. Yep. Ideally, get that below 94 centimetres. If you know you're sitting as a weight that isn't where you normally would have, if it's been over the last couple of years, you started to put on a little bit of bit of pudge, then be trimming that back. We've done a great episode on how to be doing that as well, following some six dietary principles to lose that weight and keep it off. So there's an episode there for you guys to go back and have a listen to if you want to know more about that. And then what would be the next? What are the other important stuff? You mentioned nutritional status. Yeah, so nutritional status, let's um, explore those uh, in detail. So, um, yeah, well, again, the, the things that are sort of conducive to weight gain, like a, a high-fat and a processed diet, is linked to abnormalities in the sperm, uh, epigenetic uh, profiles. Um, but looking at the, the micronutrients, the thing like things like our B vitamins, like folate, um, is well known for women that that helps prevent neural tube defects. But likewise with men, that helps with their sperm. Um, folate is actually like the supplier of these methyl groups, these little tags that go onto the DNA. So that's our sort of you know raw ingredients needed for um, creating epigenetic changes. Um, so the so the B vitamins are the, the main ones. Um, I'm sure in time we'll learn that the usual suspects like the vitamin Ds and um, the Cs and fruits and vegetables, etc. But as I said, a lot of it's still in its infancy. Um, on the flip side, yeah, alcohol, um, smoking. Probably the, the one um, that may not be as intuitive is in like psychological stress, um, as we saw in that um, the foot shock study with the mice, that they can get stressed out. But um, when we're talking folate, that, like, that's like a chemical phenomenon, but psychological stress or our perception of it can affect our, you know, our DNA or our, our epigenetics. So, and stress can be a hard thing to avoid. So it's probably more about managing stress and working on our perceptions and offsetting stresses or having outlets, etc. You know, downtime and um, family time and you know, not overworking, etc. Sometimes easier said than done, but all these things that probably cause poor health or symptoms in yourselves or well, the men um, probably have an effect on our epigenetics as well. It's such an important one, especially with the you look at the rates of mental health issues in young males. Yeah, and it's it's significant, and that means that if if you know if you're suffering with a mental health issue, you, you potentially there's a there's an increased risk of the child developing the same kind of stress patterns, and. I think it's something that a lot of people who've suffered with, you know, mood disorders can really appreciate is that it's probably made things pretty difficult. You know, it's probably there's been hard times, there's been challenges and, you know, life may have got them to be overstressed, anxious and down that that would be the last thing you'd want for your child to experience. You yeah. know, and I think that it's an area where I've found that with speaking with fathers to be can really hit home about the importance of them doing some preconception care and some planning and taking care of themselves so they don't pass on those same habits so that when their child turns out like grows up to be a teenager that isn't experiencing the same kind of 
mental health challenges and anxiety or depression that, that they may have had to endure yeah. through elements of their yeah. life. And I think that it is such an important aspect to a serious, like, you know, it's a pretty ser- simple intervention. Like seeing a practitioner, if you are feeling like, um, you know, your mental health isn't as great as it used to be or isn't, isn't its best, and some simple, like, straightforward nutrition stuff, addressing that with what's going on in the individual can provide profound impacts in that person. Helps them in their life, which is great, and I think that's also got a flow-on effect because given the challenges that you've got with lack of sleep and raising a child, it's probably good to, you know, be as, as solid as possible anyhow. Yes. But um, also good because you're going to pass that on to your, to your child. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably also that um, hopefully the... The positive from this with the the male and to just sort of can be stereotypical like us males thinking logic and and left brain and the the notion that somehow my stress can mystically you know affect my stress levels of my offspring. It sounds so crazy. Like yeah, it's yeah, illogical. The, the science is is here and now, and it's um and it's still emerging, but it's well documented now that this this is a. A, a recognized mechanism and it's something you need to be mindful of well they saw that from the study with the holocaust survivors where and joe and i spoke about this in the previous episode where you know that study where they looked at the holocaust survivors and individuals who had been it was more pronounced if they were um in around their teen years i believe uh, in concentration camps or suffering the you know during the world war Two, and that changed their stress response and programming for their life and so it established brain patterns Mm. similar to that of PTSD and, you know, understandably so, there was mental health issues, but that that would then be passed down to the child. Now, that was in mothers, I believe, but you see the same animal studies that they induce uh, stress response, so different to the one you were talking about, but when they they give them medications to make the um, mouse stressed and he's exhibit anxiety behaviour, that then, that father then has a child who then has the same stress response, who's like wired to be easily stressed and just exhibits the same kind of depressive and anxiety-like behaviour that the father did from the actual same acute stressor. So it seems, I, I know when I started looking at it, it seems like it's a bit of a quantum leap and I think that's where a lot of guys might struggle with recognizing it but now the science is showing what happens because of the epigenetic tags in the sperm so i think we do really need to respect how much we're passing on to our kids yeah yeah i think a um, good example a really tangible example of this epigenetic effect um while we're on the subject was the um recent investigation i don't know if you saw this this the astronauts that the twins there's twins astronauts i think scott's their surname but one stayed on earth and the other twin went up to space for an extended period and space is very stressful like lack of gravity and circadian rhythm and you're eating obviously sort of you know concentrated packaged foods etc um and they measured and obviously they got the identical dna the genetics but they measured their um, epigenome so where those methyl tags were stuck on and off their gene sequence before and after the um the twin that went up came back down and they noticed huge shift in the epigenetics of the the twin that came back down. Or well, there's differences between them um, with the profile, the the one that did the space flight, extremely stressed and um, adversely affected. So that's a, I think just a concrete example of like genetically identical um, people and how their environment um, can really shape the way their their body um, functions. So make sure we're fostering a health promoting environment. 
you know. Yeah, yeah. Reducing your stress, getting some support with that if required, eating the right kind of diet, exercising, getting your metabolic health under control, and then also harnessing the health promotion of the actual sperm. So, you know, you mentioned folic acid and B vitamins to help with the um, epigenetics of the sperm. Other factors can also help with that. Like they think that antioxidants may also help with the like the sperm, not only health, but also maybe changing those genetic expression in the sperm as well, right? Yeah. So these are things that might often be used to enhance the health of the sperm anyway. Like if, you know, if people are suffering with infertility issues, maybe they've got low sperm count, low morphology, low motility, things like CoQ10 are commonly prescribed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this still has a role here in potentially enhancing the health of the sperm. Um, also, the less oxidative stress that's within the sperm will help with conception, will also help with the risk of the mother developing preeclampsia during pregnancy. So these things have been directly linked to the health of the sperm. Uh, vitamin C, another simple, easy one, vitamin E, um, carnitine, all these sort of ingredients that boost the health of the sperm also then potentially have those flow-on effects for changing the epigenome, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so it's typically, yeah, what helps with the sort of gross parameters of sperm health, like the, the number and the morphology or how they look and how well they swim, typically affect also the, epi- the more subtle epigenetics. And interestingly, um, they're finding that even all those little epigenetic marks have um, do have imp- have a strong influence on whether the, the woman conceives or that the sperm is viable in the first places. So the moment it enters like the, the uterus, those epigenetic factors are, are playing a role. So it's profound for not only conception, but yeah, for those, that longer term health. So the science is in, guys. Science is in, we, yeah. We gotta, we gotta pull our weight. Three months, four months before conception, check our metabolic weight, be following some healthy diet, lifestyle patterns. If you're smoking, you know, ideally, obviously, be cutting that out, certainly reducing that as much as possible. Um, careful with the drinking and monitor stress patterns. If you, if you are stressed, be dealing with that. Now, I would love to think that there's a lot of guys listening to this that then would, could maybe take that on board for the next pregnancy or before um, they're having their first child. In reality, if that hasn't happened, it's not like you've been a terrible father before you've even started, right? Like it's you've still got opportunity to change the health outcomes in that child. Ideally, preconception care, great. But there's still an ability to come in with the father and they show his role in that, you know, after birth and in the infancy period as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't want to, yeah, create too much of a dire picture and um, because you could dwell on um, if you've got a child, all the, the things and mistakes you or theoretical mistakes you, you may have made, myself included, after having two children. I think um, our first one, we realised my wife was pregnant because her what we thought was a hangover didn't go away for a couple of days. So <laughs> and we're as guilty as everybody else. Um, but there's yeah, so it's it's not like the end of the world, but they, it can have a, a big influence. Um, but yeah, good question. So once the baby's born. Um, I suppose similar to the the idea about it's not just conception, um, also this notion that the men's health can be affected by the arrival of a newborn. Um, it's a you know wondrous time and it's an amazing and miracle, but it changes your life dramatically, um, and your mood can be affected. And on the flip side, um, a men's role in parenting has a huge impact on the development and and potentially the 
um, long-term health of the child. So I'll start with the, the latter with, um, uh, you know, they have been looking at research on men bonding with their um, babies soon after birth. So um, this phenomenon of like skin-to-skin contact when the baby's first born, if you can um, make connection with the baby, skin-to-skin contact, and they've done research and um, looking at babies like pain and stress response and um, essentially calmness is much more heightened when they can um, connect with their dad on a, on a physical um, level. And I'm sure both the, the dad also um, finds benefit there. Um, so, and also uh, that sort of stereotypical, you know, dad um, behaviour, which I've, I'm sure I've certainly been guilty of and I'm quite proud of it, like, um, you know, that horseplay hanging around with the kids and hanging them upside down and um, that rough and tumble and that sort of, you know, the wrestle and you let them sort of win and sit on top of you and all that sort of stuff. Um, there have been, there's been a bit of research looking at that and that has been linked to, like, better, you know, mood and um, neurodevelopment. So, you know, that sort of intuitive play, which you see through different species, like, you know, lions do it, you know, the, the, the little cubs jump on top of dad, etc. That's really, really important um, that the research is showing for the development of the child. So it's not just, yeah, the, I suppose back in the 1950s where the, the men's out in the waiting room having a cigarette waiting for the, the, the news <laughs> of the arrival and he goes back to reading his, um, you know, paper with his slippers by his side. Like, um, data shows that men playing an active role has a, a huge influence on the emotional well-being of the child. Yeah, that's awesome. And certainly getting more getting involved, helping that family unit as well. Um, I'm, you know, the same as that skin-to-skin contact. Like, obviously, it's, t- it's taking place with the mother anyway, so it's more about it's getting that dad involved as well, right? Yeah. Now, the impact of what you were saying before that though was um the change on the father's life so he can have there's still a good opportunity um for him to be able to if there were any wrongs or things weren't dealt with ideally you know like you're saying it's not always like preconception planning can take place but you've got the opportunity to come in and you can really kind of clean the slate up and improve the health outcomes during that window by doing all those you know playing skin-to-skin contact the love and the support and at the same time, there's a lot of physiological changes for him, just like there was for her. Obviously not to the same degree for Correct. him as for her. Yeah. But his testosterone levels will drop, certainly from the lack of sleep and the stress that will influence. But there seems to be some studies where they show that, you know, fathers have different, especially newer fathers, have different testosterone profiles compared to, like, their single men counterparts. Or, yeah. And he can also be, which is, I think, fascinating, prone to... He can experience postnatal depression as well. Absolutely, he? yeah, yeah. Um, so just on the testosterone thing, like, I wouldn't be fearful that you're not going to become like andropause where you. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a complex discussion, and I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of layers on top of that. But I think it's um, more of a, 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 yeah, obviously a psychological thing where there's a, a small but significant decline in testosterone. Maybe just to facilitate different sort of behaviour because testosterone mm. has a. a, a amazing effect on the brain so maybe it makes you you know more i don't know sociable or or you know nurturing in a sense so it's not seen as i don't think it's a pathology it's a sort of an adaptation probably to the time and yeah because there's a high testosterone associated with risk taking and things yeah, like that as well yeah, so like, it's not the time to be yeah. taking risks now that you've got a newborn exactly the, yeah and again like high levels of testosterone is not sort of pathological as well like it's you know in sports and um business and banking and maybe you know professional poker and things like that that's where 
it plays a role. Mm. Um, it's just it's like your body's adjusting to the the, the new. Um, you know, the change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, adapting to the change to keep harmony. Yeah, but onto the yeah more important thing, the the mental health issue. Um, I think it's one in ten. Was it one in yeah. five? I think. I think it's one one in ten. I thought one in ten can men can um, experience um, like low mood during pregnancy, and I think now it's about one in five um, that can. Anyway, it's a significant amount that's been recognised in Australia, particularly that can feel, quote-unquote, postnatal depression or, you know, lower moods after the baby's born. Now, when you think about it, I think it's... Part of it's, like, just obvious because, um, yes, you know, bringing a child into, as I mentioned, into the world is amazing and it's this, like, miracle, but the the reality is there's a lot of sleep deprivation um, and that's something I don't think you can... You can't train for sleep deprivation. It's like, try not to drink water. Like, you're going to get thirsty. Try not to... You know, sleep um, 40% less or whatever it is, you're going to be tired and that can affect your mood and your appetite and um, your weight can go up because of this, you know, sort of a cascading events of low sleep, um, which increases cravings, which makes you reach for probably the, the poorer choices in food. So, Contributing um, factor to dad bod. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, things can change, yeah, pretty rapidly. And I suppose for men, like, you might feel a bit guilty as well. I was like, I'm supposed to be, you know, feeling amazing because I've, you know, brought its life into the world. But um, yeah, it, there's a lot of hardship, and as I said, because there's this disruption to your um, sleeping and eating, etc. Um, so I think I just want people to be mindful. Of this these things can happen. Um, again, like you know, postnatal depression in women's much greater, and understandably. So we need to be on the on the lookout for that. But um, again, just don't rule out dads. This sort of, you know, this sort of metronome is just cruising along all the time at the same um, level. He's prone to um, mood, you know, instability or or low mood, and we need to, you know, be mindful of it and take some proactive measures again. So, you know, I suppose sleep is the big one. That is going to be dependent on how well the baby sleeps, and that's probably another whole podcast you can look at. But maybe, and again, like as a as a parent, like especially first-time parents, your life does change a lot. You, a lot of your, I wouldn't say freedom, but your sort of free time has changed. You can't sort of just go out and go out for beers with the, the mates or head to the gym and head to the gym or, or binge watch Netflix yeah. on a Saturday night. So I don't know. Maybe be mindful of trying to make sure you get that good night's sleep. It'd be my my first choice. Um, yeah, just like before conception, keep eating well, um, keep moving. Um, and probably don't beat yourself up if you you are finding you're eating, you know, more foods are the ones of the you know quote unquote bad foods that you know you shouldn't be because there is this probably a bit more of an innate drive to reach for those things. So be kind to yourself, um, you know, psychologically, but also try and be consistent with those health habits as well. So I think it's a good start. Um, and yeah, then you can look at helping the, the mom, you know, and the baby getting adequate sleep. Um, Hopefully the feeding's going well with the baby, et cetera, and the baby's you know healthy and doesn't have colic and all those sort of things that typically crop up. No, that's a nice message for for fathers um, planning for for children is you know being kind of themselves and also taking the responsibility for yourself. The improving your health will improve essentially your whole family's health. It's going to help with the pregnancy. It's going to help with the health of your child and their health throughout their whole life. So it's probably a logical place to leave it, Nathan. I think that's been a really comprehensive wrap-up. Is there anything else that you 
wanted to mention or that you think is important for fathers to consider in this period? Yeah, uh, just to sort of repeat, like, you know, by looking after yourself, you're, you're looking after the next generation. Um, so, yeah, you're doing not only self a favour, but your offspring, if, um, you know, you're looking at conceiving. As I said, um, you don't have to get too obsessive about it. As I mentioned, like, getting things in the right direction, losing the weight, generally eating healthier, um, ideally, you know, avoiding the smoking. As I said, you don't have to become a teetotaler, but you know probably make a bit of effort make a bit of effort and know where to to draw the line and um you know cut back on the alcohol um and then as i said like just yeah be, <laughs> even though i said you can't prepare for it like be prepared for change when when the baby comes um enjoy the good times but i suppose you know know that there's going to be some more challenging times and and really try and work on your resilience because as i said it, it's going to be a, a a big change and um, it's you know it's amazing, but it can can be testing, and um, we need to look after yourselves. For, to, that's probably the best way you can help look after the child is make sure you're healthy. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I mean that translates to looking like you know probably multivitamin, cover your nutritional status through that preconception period. Look at um, supplementing with things like vitamin C, CoQ10. You know even a thousand milligrams of vitamin C a day, CoQ10 somewhere between a hundred and 300 milligrams of CoQ10 a day. There's herbs like tribulus that some men might be familiar with that help with boosting libido and testosterone levels and improving their kind of like traditional male tonics. So multivitamins and basic nutritional status, mindful of your stress levels, mindful of your metabolic health, and that's going to put you in the best stead for preparation for you and, and for the child. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Then that's, you know, every father wants to do the best thing and yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. their child and for I don't the family. Think anyone's deliberately trying to sabotage their child. And people aren't deliberately trying to sabotage their health as well. But um, it is a it can be a tough world where there's a lot of you know food and um, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, like a lot of activities being taken away from us. So you know maybe for it's about being creative for the man, like getting a you know a, a baby seat for the, the bike and sneaking that in the back and you're you know spending time with the child and you're getting some exercise or mm. you know, taking the kid for a walk in the pram or taking him for a run. It's just like the rest of sort of our physiology, we've got to adapt um, and it can be a really positive experience. Yeah, and I think it's just, it always comes down to education and understanding around that. And hopefully, guys, this episode's been useful to appreciate just how influential some of those things that you're doing that might seem fairly benign or unrelated, that they can actually impact your health um, and more obviously, and more importantly in this instance, the health of your family. So thanks so much, Nathan, for giving us a nice wrap on that and uh, giving the core points that why it is so important for men to be really looking at their health to be improving the health outcomes for their children and potentially even their grandchildren thank you it was a pleasure to come on again yeah good to see you again thanks thank you thanks for listening to your health guide any resources or links discussed in the episode can be found at metagenics.com.au to help you continue on your health journey Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you found this episode useful, please rate and review us. If you have any questions about how this information could relate to your health condition, please go and speak to your natural healthcare practitioner who can provide you with specific advice for your health needs.